welcome to Growing, a podcast about birth, babies, and beyond. I'm your host, Beth. I'm a midwife, a business owner, and a mum. If you're anything like me, you find yourself wearing many hats, and this can be fun and hard and everything in between. So I'm here to offer support and solidarity for whatever season of growth you find yourself in. Let's go. Today's podcast is brought to you by Aussie baby sleepwear brand Ergo Pouch. If you haven't heard of Ergo Pouch, they make organic, premium, ergonomically designed sleepwear. We have used the Ergo Sleep range since Poppy was just a few weeks old and we still tuck her into bed in one now. Having trialed many, the Ergo Pouch range are easily our favourite. I love that their TOG rated pouches come with a thermometer and a what to wear guide, taking the guests out of dressing throughout the year so my daughter can not only sleep with ease, but it helps me rest easy knowing she is sleeping safely and comfortably. I'm super excited to share that everyone's favorite Disney prints and pouch tails collections are now on sale at up to 40% off. From the vibrant, cute fruit print inspired by winter stone fruits to the veggie patch print with the winter warming vegetables. Encourage your little one to point out and discuss your mini's favorite fruit and veg as part of your nighttime ritual. Check out their outlet now for great savings. Hello and welcome to Growing. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Sharon Stolia. Sharon is an Australian midwife, mother and author. Following a traumatic birth experience that left her with long-term health complications, Sharon became a fierce advocate for change and a voice for birthing women everywhere. Her book, Scars of Gold, details her journey from a harrowing postpartum, lengthy recovery and road to recognition in which she worked tirelessly to ensure her concerns were heard and systems were changed. As I read Sharon's book, I was struck by her resilience and strength, and it is an honor to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me on your podcast today. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an absolute privilege. And I wonder if you could kick us off by sharing a little bit about yourself and giving us a brief overview of your journey into motherhood and I guess the the set of events that, you know, spurred on and put your book in motion. Um, yeah. So I, I was a midwife before I had my son, Jeremy, and, you know, being a midwife had all these different expectations and um, ideas of how things would would go and also was aware that things might not go to plan, but I was prepared for that. But the only plan I really had was to push my baby out and go home after four hours. That, that was pretty much the only thing I really wanted. But um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. I ended up having an emergency cesarean which surprisingly hasn't been any kind of source of trauma for me because maybe because I knew that at that stage I, I knew we needed to go down that road and it was fine. But what really threw me was a complication that happened to my leg um, in the postnatal ward about 10 hours after I had my son. My leg started to swell and it was agonizing pain. No one was really listening to me. The doctors were dismissing it somewhere inside. I knew it wasn't normal, but when you're in that state of pain, it's really hard to, to kind of think clearly. Ultimately, it was a delayed diagnosis of acute compartment syndrome, where which left me with a lot of permanent damage to my leg 
to the muscle, the nerve structures in my right leg, because it was quite delayed. It was day 10 by the time they really figured it out. It was too late to do the fasciotomy surgery that I would have needed to prevent the permanent damage. So I went home after 15 days. You know, my whole journey of motherhood was totally different to what I expected. I had to move in. My husband and I had to move, my then husband and I had to move into my parents' home because not only did we have a little baby, I needed to be cared for full-time care. Um, I couldn't walk, I couldn't carry him, I couldn't go to the bathroom without help. So um, it was a real unique journey that I never experienced. But I, I do remember someone, a friend of mine, got in touch with me and said, Sharon, you better get your medical records before they mysteriously disappear. And she was an obstetrician. So I got my medical records and... You know, I was really angry already about what had happened to me because I, I was feeling very dismissed and I hadn't been listened to when I was on the ward, when I was complaining of pain. So when I got my medical records and read through it, I got even more angry just to read the shocking way, the shocking care I'd received, the lack of communication between all the treating doctors and midwives and Um, I felt really let down by this system, by this healthcare system that I was part of, that I had worked for, that I trusted, and I felt that I was one of their own. Um, I felt betrayed and uh, furious, so I started this journey of complaining, writing a letter of complaint. It was several years before I got what I wanted, um, which I I talk about all the battles um, in my book, but... You know, it was really about 10 years, eight years maybe, since I had my son when I actually thought of putting a book together about my journey, about my process, about what I experienced. and Yeah, and, you know, your story in particular is very layered. And by that I mean as I was reading it, I was thinking, gosh, there's so much to unpack here as to the many, many reasons potentially why it occurred in the first place, but also your experience of it. And there was this quote that said, my my training and experience screamed, this is not normal, do mm. something. But at the same time, I was also very aware that if I voiced my concerns out loud, I'd be labelled the troublemaking know-it-all. Mm. And that really jumped out at me because I think that, I guess there's two things I want to ask you about, but the first one is, as women, we are socially conditioned to be, I guess, e- easygoing and um, accommodating. And I think that as a result, many of us, even as adult w- women, are deeply uncomfortable with being seen as difficult. And so when I, I do think that this has a huge role to play in our experience of trauma because our inner voice can be saying, no, 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 this is just not right. But then there's a layer of social conditioning that's going, no, you need to listen to the powers to be, in this case, your medical team, and you and you shouldn't be making a fuss, you know. And, and there was also parts in your book where you detailed feeling like an inconvenience when you pressed your buzzer, when you spoke up, and the response that you got from the staff members. I wonder, you know, if you could share a bit about 
what role do you think this dynamic plays in the experience of birth trauma? And and do you think that women are at risk in the hospital setting because this power imbalance is amplified? I absolutely do think women are at risk of birth trauma in the hospital setting um, because of this power imbalance. And I think as midwives, we, we kind of come to the table with this this narrative that we see women as our equal. They are equal to us. We are not above them. We have this relationship with women and we care for them as as equal to us. But the reality is they are not you as midwives. We have power over women. We actually have a lot more power over women. And I think the first step in minimising this trauma is acknowledging that it's it's the truth, it's reality. We have the power to make things happen or not do anything, not make things happen. And this whole idea of us being equal to the women we care for is a romanticised idea. It's not, it's not true. We have the power to either make or break a woman at that moment. You know, the reality is we have this ID badge, we have this work uniform, we have this title, we can ring the... Um, call the doctor and say, I need you to see this woman now. Or yeah. we can dismiss her and say, oh, no, you'll be all right, you know, or or just um, everything that happens is all based on the power that we have over women. And we need to acknowledge that first and foremost. And then we can minimise the risk, right? When I was in there as a patient with a patient gown and a bed number, I really felt that difference. Um, I am a midwife. I remember feeling I'm a midwife. I, I, If that was me on the other side, I could pick up the phone and say, I need you to see this woman now. It's yeah. urgent. I could keep calling the doctor until they came. But in the bed, I, I was voiceless. I was powerless. It didn't matter what I said. None of it carried any weight. And that was a huge moment of realisation to this power imbalance. And then when I wasn't being listened to, that also, like, I don't know how to explain it. I felt so voiceless and nameless and powerless and I was stuck. There was this part that it was just so confronting to read and it was when the the doctor came and told you that you'd probably bumped your leg. Mm. That for me, when I read that, you had escalated your concerns about excruciating levels of pain in your leg that was accompanied by, you know, some very concerning clinical signs of swelling and redness Mm. that we should not be seeing routinely in the pre-op period. And for someone who, who as, as you've just pointed out, has the power to do something about that and to action it and to escalate it, minimizes your voice it's only going to make you feel further trapped. And also the thing that stood out to me is that it made you second guess your own mind. Yes. You knew in your heart that you had not bumped your leg, that even if you had bumped your leg along the way, it would not elicit the response that you were seeing in your body. But then you were just told that that was what was happening and that that must be the issue at hand and not to worry about it. And then you found yourself thinking, Oh, should I chat to my midwife who was present with me? Like maybe I did bump my leg. And that for me, I was just like, that is the real danger there is that we, if we dismiss people, 
they then not only have they been dismissed and silenced, but their confidence in knowing, you know, their intuition is then compromised in a very big way. So there is that, you know, that's a really scary place to be. And you use the word trapped, which I thought was a, a very apt use of language for that scenario that you found yourself in. Yeah, I I absolutely felt trapped because in my professional life, I was a midwife. Mm. I was a professional. I had the qualifications. And yet there I was in this in my personal life as, as the patient. But because I was a midwife, I just felt, because I was also a midwife, I felt I was neither a midwife or a patient in that situation. I was somewhere in between, but I, I couldn't figure out where I was. I was scared to be fully the patient and cause this fuss and demand care because of knowing what goes on in the background in the handover when you're making a fuss and pressing the buzzer and knowing how they're going to get frustrated at you and whinge about you. And I was scared to be this professional um, midwife as well because then, oh, if I start demand uh, relying on my knowledge, what if I'm wrong? I'm second-guessing myself. What if I'm wrong? What, is this something I should know? Is this normal? Or do I not know something that I should know and then am I going to look like, I'm silly or not smart, yeah. those kind of things going through my head. Yes, and so that there's not only the medical staff, we will using inverted commas, we'll say patient, because at that stage you were, like yes. you, you know, we like to say women and birthing women and birthing people, right. but at that point you'd had surgery and, and you were having all of these really abnormal symptoms. Yes. So there's that sort of patient and medical team imbalance, but then there's this other layer of, if you were to allow yourself to step into that midwife role, then there's that midwife doctor imbalance yes. of like the doctor saying one thing and you're saying the other. And we know as midwives what that can feel like and how belittling it can feel That's when right. you've been caring for someone for a number of hours. You're very, you feel quite certain in your clinical assessment that something is abnormal and you're told, oh, don't worry about it or, you know, it's not urgent or whatever. And so I can't imagine how how deeply challenging it would have been to have all of these competing forces all the while you have your hours old or days old, hours old mm. son. Yes. And so the second thing that I wanted to talk to you about is this idea, and you're one of the first texts that I've come across to kind of explore this, but the complexity of being the midwife becoming the mother. Mm. And you wrote, I couldn't let myself be that midwife who lost the plot and wasn't holding it all together. And I think that this is something that a lot of midwives will relate to. The pressure, whether we put it on ourselves or whether there's an external pressure because there's an expectation that our training and experience will make us good yeah. at motherhood and good at newborn life. But it can be really, I guess, hard when you're in those new mum shoes and everyone's like, oh, she's a midwife, she'll have she'll have it covered. And you mentioned this dynamic a little bit as well of like, I just wanted to be doing everything well and I didn't want to be seen as someone who couldn't like hack it almost. Talk to me a little bit about that and do you, have you spoken to other midwives about that? experience so this um this was the very thing this this 
expectation that I felt was on me to just get on with it um, because I think I mentioned that that was there in the ward just why are you pressing the buzz so much you're a midwife you can get on with it I felt like I had fallen through the cracks um, and I felt like I had to rely on my own knowledge and because of that I think I don't know if it's something we put on ourselves but I think there's a culture there that we expect each other to um, get on with it and be okay with it and this was the thing that led me into my PhD which I've now been doing for about seven years on midwives own experiences of pregnancy and childbirth and how that impacts on the care they receive and it was actually before I enrolled into that it was actually a few other friends and colleagues mostly midwives a couple of obstetricians who got in touch with me because as I was journeying this very unusual journey of birthing and motherhood I was sharing a lot on Facebook it was just an easier way to keep everyone up updated writing back to messages and because of that quite a few people well let's say about five people reached out to me to share their experience of being the midwife and then becoming that sick patient when they gave birth and you know not they didn't have compartment syndrome it might have been some other complication or just feeling like they were left to their own devices but it was these voices that made me realize hang on We've got so much research out there on women's experiences of pregnancy and birth. But as midwives, we're this unique group of women where the majority of midwives are female and the majority of them have either given birth or of childbearing age. I yeah. thought, wait a minute, isn't childbirth such an important part of our lives? It impacts everything we our whole worldview changes after that. So mm -hmm. then what's the impact then when we go back to work in that same field, especially after trauma? So it led me on this journey of um, a PhD researching midwives' experiences, and I've published two papers so far about that, another two, another one on the way. But it's very eye-opening to see what midwives have said my review, the integrative review I published last year under the supervision of um, Associate Professor Dina Sheehan and Professor Hannah Darling was saying exactly what you said, Beth, this expectation to get on with it, um, mm -hmm. that would be fine. Um, midwives were, this is a, the published literature, not my survey, but the other literature, midwives felt they were left to their own devices in the postnatal ward. While they had a lot of autonomy being able to get the choices that, that they wanted for their labour and birth, in my survey, 75% um, of the midwives got to choose the individual care provider. Like, that's yeah. massive. That's um, very high levels of autonomy and able to navigate and manipulate the system. But when it came to postnatal, in the review, in the literature, um, on this topic, midwives were left to their own devices. In breastfeeding, okay, she's a midwife. She, she knows what to do. But hang on, she's a new mother. We, we've yeah. had a new mother with new mum hormones raging through their bodies. And, yes, they might have helped other women attach a baby, but now they've just gone through this whole process and they shouldn't be expected to have to rely on their own knowledge to just get on with it. So there's yeah. this mismatch in, and one stage we get all this support in 
antenatal and labour and birth care, but when it comes to postnatal, there's this um, being left to our own devices issue. It's really interesting to, yeah, just to hear you talk about this topic and I'm I'm so excited that you've explored it so formally through research because I think that's amazing. But I think there was a couple of features of my pregnancy and birth experience, which I must say was wholeheartedly quite positive overall. But in the postpartum period, my little girl went to special care and it, and it wasn't, she was okay. She had an infection and we didn't know why, but she was, she was okay and she just needed um, a few days of antibiotics. But still that was quite, a, it was very unexpected for a full-term infant with a normal birth to, to have to do that. And I didn't realise I was doing it at the time, but I was trying to be professional mm-hmm. about it and I was trying to hold it all together um, in a really like easy, like, no, no, I, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment and I, you know, participating not in a parent way yes. in the sort of the rounds um, and trying to just be cool, calm, collected about it all. And then when we got home a few days later and I was alone with her and I, it just kind of all dawned on me like, oh, my baby was really sick. She needed to be cannulated and on oxygen and that was quite confronting. I had this huge emotional wobble of like I was like checking on her really anxiously and I was crying and my partner was like, what's going on? Like, are you okay? And it just kind of hit me and I didn't even realise I was doing it at the hospital, but I was being, I had my midwife hat on. I wanted to be, no, no, this is fine. I've seen babies like this. The outcome will be good. She'll have, she needs her cannula flushed and I know that this has to happen at this time. And it's, yeah, I do think that it potentially is a broader issue that midwives can be, and no one made me do that. Yeah. I think that was me. Like you said, I didn't want to be that midwife that couldn't handle it, wasn't yeah. organised, wasn't feeding well. I didn't want to have the sick baby that I couldn't latch to my breast or, or whatever the case may be um, because we're expected to know everything. And so it's just, yeah, that that was a theme that potentially wasn't like the the primary theme of your book, but it really stood out to me, the pressures that you were putting on yourself despite everything else that was happening around you to also be the midwife mum that had it. Yeah, that's right. I, I absolutely relate to those feelings you're talking about, Beth. And you said, you know, it wasn't you. It wasn't expected of you. It was you. But you know, over this decade of processing this and thinking about it and and going through it, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about this experience. And I think maybe it's more the expectation. It's an unspoken expectation. And, yeah, we, we don't, no one says you have to have your midwife hat on. But... Does anyone ever say to our midwife women who are becoming mums or new mums in the postnatal ward, you don't have to be the midwife today? Yeah. We don't say that. We've not given that permission. While we don't implicitly tell midwives we're expecting you to have your midwife hat on, we also systematically I'm saying just collectively we don't say to midwives hey you don't need to be a midwife today you're a new mum it's okay to ask questions you have permission to ask those silly questions that you think are silly and you won't be judged 
your clinical knowledge and skills won't be judged. We won't look down on you for asking what you think is a silly question because you have lump hormones going through. You're not expected to think as a midwife now. We're not giving permission. We're not, you know, and we don't have, we shouldn't have to, but it is there, that culture is there. It's an unspoken expectation. So maybe it's something we need to think about as a profession when we are looking after women who are midwives. Maybe we need to intentionally say to them, you don't need to be a midwife today. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that it's sometimes in our efforts to not want to patronize the women that we're looking after who might also be midwives mm-hmm. and sometimes our colleagues. We don't want to say those things or maybe even give them the normal level of care and education that we otherwise would. But I think that just what you suggested there is a beautiful gateway to just gauge how they're feeling and go, yeah, like you don't have to step into that role today. That's what I'm here for. And then if they kind of brush you off and go, oh, I'm all good, like don't worry about it, then it's like, okay, cool. But they might look at you and just be like, oh, thank God. Yes. Like goodness that you've said that because I was over here trying to be all professional and, and organised and I'm so relieved that you're going to take on that load today. Yeah, that's. I think we really do need to start thinking about, you know, we talk about woman-centred care, which is all about care that incorporates everything that the woman is when the woman is the midwife we need to acknowledge the professional identity that she has but we also need to acknowledge that she's a new mum and find the care find that midpoint that balance based on what she needs from the care providers right which might mean you know, oh, don't tell me anything I know. Or it might mean I'm going to ask you all the questions because I can't even remember it and I don't want you to judge me for asking these questions, you know. I think we're so afraid of what they'll think of us if we ask the question. I remember asking this really because I was in for 15 days and obviously I'd, I'd never looked after anyone in a hospital um, personally for 15 days. You know, they're gone by day four, day six at the latest and his belly button, right, the cord. So I the cord. I had so many worries about the cord, yes. I didn't know. Like I knew the first few days. I knew how to clean it. I remember telling my mum, this is how you do it. But and I, I had to ask a midwife and I like, is this normal? And I said to her, I need to ask you something. Like, is this, and I felt so stupid asking her because I, I felt I had this expectation that I should know if it's normal or not. But when I look at it from like this, from this perspective, not being in it anymore and, you know, 10 years later, um, 11 years later, you know, like, I, I didn't need to feel stupid. Of course, I wouldn't have known. I'm not a child health nurse. I was a midwife for a few days, really, yes. um, of postnatal, you know. But it's there. It's always there. You don't want to ask because there's so many reasons why you don't want to ask questions, right? Yes. And writing this book has really helped me unpack a lot of that. Like, why did I feel that way? Why didn't I say something, you know? Yeah, and that's why your research will be so powerful for this, you know, group of women and and midwives. I felt so oddly relieved to be linked in with my maternal and child health nurse because 
I saw her outside of, like she probably saw on my chart or on my file, you know, dad's a teacher, mum's a midwife, maybe. But there was no pressure to be the midwife. Mm. And I and I know a lot of people don't enjoy, go, like depending on who you get, some people are like, oh, I didn't vibe with my maternal health nurse. I loved mine. She was like uh, sort of, she's probably a little bit older than my mum. We were in the pandemic, so I hadn't seen my parents in a long time. I just felt like I was visiting this like older kind auntie and she would just give me so much reassurance. And the cord was this, you know, poppies kept oozing at like 14 days. And I was like, is it, should I do something about it? I don't know. And she was just like, no, it's fine, darling. You're doing so well. You should just go and eat some cake. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she just made me feel so comforted every time. And it was, I think, not only was she an absolute sweetheart, but I think it was that little bit of distance from the hospital. And I, I birthed where I worked and I have no regrets over that. I had some really beautiful care. Um, but it was just nice to have that little distance and to like fully put my mum hat on and just, mm. just say, oh, I don't know if this is normal or she hasn't pooed or, you know, what's that rash or whatever it was I was worried about that day. Yeah, it's nice to be able to be just fully be without needing to wear that clinical hat. Yes, exactly. I wanted to ask you, uh, and you've touched on this, but you went through an extensive feedback process in order to elicit change. Mm. And I highly, highly encourage anyone listening to go and read Scars of Gold because it is such a beautiful read, but also it really, you know, helps you understand what women who choose to go down the path of, of feedback, what that can look like. But this had a profound impact on your mental health, but equally was something you were very driven to do. And I think, yeah, I think you described it as having like a fire in your belly. Like it was just, yeah. just like through this. Um, and actually, as an aside, I think that the way you wrote the book was really, really clever in that in those earlier chapters, we can feel your rage. You are it is so clear how deeply disappointed you are about the events of your care. And then as you work through them and, and as you move more towards that resolution, you know, the language changes and, and the vibe changes. And I think that that was such a beautiful journey to take the reader on. But what advice do you have for women who experience birth trauma as a result of subpar maternity care and who maybe want to lodge a complaint as someone who has walked that path where do they begin? Where do they begin? The first thing to do is I would say get a copy of your medical records and keep it with you. I've actually written a, a guide starting uh, writing a letter of complaint. It's on my website and it's a free download. Um, some templates of how to write it, how to structure it, just the steps to go through and how to work through those medical records. If you really want to see what happened and what was written about you, it's good to get your copy of the medical records. If you don't want that, I think the first thing to do is call the patient representative. In different hospitals, they're called different things like the patient safety and quality manager, the patient liaison officer. So it's basically just a phone call to the hospital and um, main switchboard and just say that you want to write a letter of complaint. Who can I speak to? Something that you might not know is that patient rep will be your biggest advocate in most mm. hospitals. While they are employed by the hospital, their job is to help you speak up 
and to have your voice heard. So they're actually in that role because they are passionate about this and passionate about helping people who have not had the greatest experience in hospital. Yeah, so I would call them and speak to them. I go, there's more detailed steps there um, in that guide, like how I would first write the letter before I call them. It all depends on what you're comfortable with, if you're confident to write a letter first. But I definitely think if you have had subpar care and you're not happy with it, you really should speak up because the more we speak up, the stronger that we fight our fight is. You know, it's, it's just collective voices that we're raising against disrespecting maternity care. And I think if you were silenced, especially if you were silenced while you were in hospital, it's even more important to speak up afterwards because going back to what you started with, we were expected socially. We're socially conditioned not to make a fuss, not to rock the boat. But I think we have to rock the boat because this kind of care is not okay. And what happened to me was over 10 years ago, and the reality is it has not changed Mm. in 10 years. It's still the same. Women are still experiencing the same disrespectful care. Mm. It is. And so, yeah, those steps are so, so important to take. And I think one of the big things that is such a challenge for freshly postpartum women to take those steps is because we are preoccupied with our babies as we should be. And it is so hard. And one of the things I loved about your, your story was the support that you had from your friends, from your family and from this hospital representative. And I think that if you are someone that's listening and you want to make a complaint, but you just feel you know, depleted, you're, you're in mum mode, you're looking after your baby, gather, a, a, it, you don't have to go through it alone. Like right. be open, tell your best friend, or like you said, you had a, a friend in your life that was a lawyer and while she didn't actually, you know, do any legal work for you formally, it was, it was someone to soundboard with. It was someone to do a bit of the back work with. You had your parents in meetings with you as, yeah. as a, pres- a supportive presence. So I do, I do think that it's the last thing you want to do, but unless we do add to the to the collection of voices, we aren't going to see the change. Change at this point has to be consumer driven. Mm-hmm. Midwives and some, you know, some portion of the medical and midwifery staff are hyper aware of the issues within the system and are trying very hard to agitate from the inside. But the issues are systemic, as mm-hmm. as you also. Uh, beautifully about in your book it is it's going to run so much deeper than just the midwife you're allocated to that day or whoever's running the ward that day or whoever's the medical director at the time this is stuff that needs to change on like a training level on a policy level on a hospital communication system design level like there is so much beyond just the the behaviors of individuals um, but but that needs to come from consumers and I think that's the thing that is quite frightening but also really important to know at the moment is that we we have to speak up. We must speak up, we absolutely must speak up and we have to keep pressing forward and I know it's hard with a new baby, I know it's hard and I know the road can be long but it's absolutely worth it. Like for me, 
um, my fight was all about wanting my case report written up. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I felt was very important because this diagnosis of compartment syndrome kept being dismissed by the surgeons, the surgical team on day two, even though the neurologist had queried it mm. quite soon after and soon enough to have given me that surgery I needed at that time, it was dismissed because the surgeons kept saying, we've never seen it in someone who's just had a baby. That's that's what I kept hearing, just because we've never seen it. And I felt I needed to fight for the next woman who might be in a bed, hospital bed on the other side of the world who mm. potentially had this same issue and doctors didn't know what to do because, you know, by the time I finally got what I wanted after four years, I'd already researched compartment syndrome and found about 15 published case reports of this happening in women after giving birth, which is, you know, eye-opening. And um, all of those cases, they had had this fasciotomy. They had this limb-saving treatment. So they were published as, hey, look at us, doctors. We, we identified it and we did something about it. But the only case where it hadn't been done was in a legal case where the woman had sued the hospital and that was a that case wasn't written up in the medical literature so I said my whole argument was just because you haven't seen it you didn't do what you should have done so if you don't publish this how does how do we educate that it actually can happen you're going to have more cases of misdiagnosis next one might not be so lucky to not need amputation because Compartment syndrome is an emergency, a limb and life-threatening emergency that needs urgent treatment straight away. So eventually when I got that paper, the paper was only published in 2020. So I just want to encourage, like, the reason why I'm pushing this, that we really need to keep speaking up is um, I published, I had it published, I had to write it up. And it was funny because I... I wasn't up to the part in your book where you share that that was your journey and that you ended up self-published, uh, yeah, writing it up. And I was in the earlier stages of the book where you mentioned um, your diagnosis and I was like, wow, I really want to understand a little bit more about that because I don't, I don't know about its relation to childbirth. And so I jumped on Google and then I was like, oh, perfect. There's this case study right here. And then I'm like reading it and then I glance up and of course I see, Sharon et al. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I think that I need to keep reading the book because there's obviously something to come here. But it just goes to show like it needs to be out there because I was someone who works in the field and I was like, I don't understand what the correlation is between but like it being a birth injury and, and issue. But I was like, but it obviously is. So let me educate myself. Um, and you've done that amazing work for us. And so... Yeah, I just think that's what I meant by your strength and your drive and your resilience. Really, it's it's not only impressive, but it's it's been so productive. Thanks, Beth. Well, you know, this paper, about three weeks ago, I got a message on Facebook from someone saying, hey, 
I, I came across you in the compartment syndrome group on Facebook. There's a few hundred, a few couple of hundred of us in this Facebook group. And my wife had an acute compartment syndrome after giving birth three weeks ago, right? And then we got connected and we were talking and realized that she got the limb saving surgery because of my case report. Because my wow. case report alerted her doctors to the, the possibility that it can happen in an obstetric context, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's well known outside the obstetric world, you know, ED, gynecology, orthopedics, but in this obstetric world, you know, obstetric, it's not something that comes to their mind. And it was my report that's you know, on open access <laughs> that made him realise and then got that urgent surgery to save her leg then and there. And it really, it's been quite emotional for me, you know, connecting with this couple in the United States, the other side of the world. And it just made, like, uh, you know, I, I've kind of, the paper's done, the case is out there, you know, I, I'm happy with that. Like, I, I got what I wanted, but just having that the blessing of being able to see that my fight saved somebody just filled my heart with so much joy that just encouraged me to just keep going because we need to fight. We just need to keep speaking up because you just never know when you're fighting to save someone. And it's taken so many years, but then to hear this from this couple and, you know, she's still got a leg and, and I'm, I'm heartbroken because I know what she's going to go through now. I know the journey, the, the long-term, you know, physical journey. You know, I'm still needing physiotherapy every week, you know, 11 years down the road. But knowing that she got that limb-saving surgery just, made it all worthwhile it was just worth every bit of this effort was worth it just to know that so that's you know really nice positive outcome from this big long fight that I had with them with the hospital system to have things done to get what I wanted it's really incredible and something that you should be so so proud of achieving so much has changed for you Sharon since you know, over the last decade as a result of your birth experience, including uh, going back to study a dual master of public health and uh, international public health, which is just incredible in itself to be able to pivot after the realisation that your, your clinical work was not possible due to your diagnosis. What goals are you currently working towards in the birth advocacy space and what are you really excited about at the moment? Um, Right now I am so excited about trying to get my PhD finished. I've almost finished a third paper and the fourth paper I've already started. And so these are my professional goals at the moment, just trying to get the the results of this big national survey I did a couple of years ago out um, to give these amazing midwives to do them justice for sharing their stories with me. I, I'm hoping to use my PhD research to hopefully get some change in the system where 
um, there's some kind of program in place for midwives to debrief um, before they go back to work. So debrief their own, own experience, their own beliefs and fears and worries based on what they went through so that they can first identify it, bracket it before they go back and give care because, you know, the whole purpose is not, not letting your experience color the care you give. Right, so that's one aspect of what I'm trying to achieve slowly with this PhD. And um, in terms of birth trauma, I am working on trying to raise awareness about disrespectful maternity care and the long-term impacts it can have. And I'd really, I've got another Instagram page called Ending Birth Trauma where I just put some information about this topic out there. Hopefully, I'd like to, you know, maybe start a non-profit to do with educating maternity care staff about the impacts of their behaviours, their care on women, the long-term impacts, really to minimise and prevent birth trauma before the next um, generation of childbearing women have to go through it to bring an end to it, you know. one. Yeah. It's just too many. So in terms of advocacy, that's really where my passion lies in bringing an end to that. So still trying to figure out a way. Like I am running a few workshops. Like I've, I ran two free webinars a couple of weeks ago um, on how to write, how to get started with writing a letter of complaint. And I do offer consulting to write those letters for women if they don't have the time or the headspace to get their head around it, reviewing yes. medical records for them um, yeah. and debriefing with them so they can understand where, you know, based on policies, what should or should not have happened, um, just to empower them to speak up because their voice matters and that's really, you know, what I'm trying to do is to help them realise that they matter. Yeah, really, really. Um, I just think that to back up all of the conversation we're hopefully having around birth trauma awareness, it's so wonderful to hear about practical services and resources as well, um, like the templates that you provide and like that service of consulting and working one-to-one to bring a letter of complaint to life and also to help people really understand their medical records because that is you know often a huge challenge yeah there's a lot of jargon in there you know as you know a lot of medical terminology acronyms that the everyday person doesn't know doesn't understand wouldn't know does that is this what should have happened is this right Uh, what happened to me what did they say about me so it's really hard if you don't have that knowledge to really understand it so yeah like for those who want to, they can take it to a GP, but yeah, I also Amazing. Before we wrap up today, can you please share with the listeners where they can find you and how they can support your work? My website is www.sharonstolia.com and that's where I have um, a little bit about me, my services and the book, Scars of Gold. I have the paperback available there. It's also available in other bookstores, but it's the cheapest through my website. It's also available on all your ebook stores, Provo, Kindle, Amazon. You can contact me through any of my socials. So I've got Instagram, Sharon Stolia, and uh, my other Instagram is Ending Birth Trauma. 
my email address is hello at sharonstolia.com. Amazing. Sharon, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for sharing so generously in your book and here today. And just thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Beth. It's been really lovely to speak to you and just unpack so many of the issues that, you know, we we share as midwives and mums. Absolutely. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. A big thank you to Ergo Pouch for making this episode of Growing Possible. Don't forget to head over to their outlet and make the most of their sale. you're hearing this message then you've listened all the way to the end and maybe you're keen for more if that's the case jump over to my website to learn about how i can support you in pregnancy it's www.birthwithbeth.com.au or check out my instagram for heaps more educational content thank you for being here and i'll see you back here very soon